Hello, and welcome to Marlboro Learning Together at a Distance, conversations about our coronavirus experience. I'm your host, Dr. Katherine Atwell, Dean of Student Research at Marlboro and a member of the History Department. This pod is a production of the Sherry and Ed Glazer Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. We created this podcast as an opportunity for all of us in the Marlboro community to reflect on and share what we've been doing, feeling, seeing, enjoying, and missing while we've been at home quarantining to prevent the spread of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Marlboro's community is strong and smart and distinctive and diverse. So in each episode, we'll hear from different members of the Marlboro community, including current students, teachers, staff, school leaders, alums, parents, trustees, and more. They'll share stories about how they're coping and sometimes not coping so well with the pandemic. And in the process, we'll learn about some of the creative ways that Marlboro teachers and students are learning together at a distance. The goal of this pod is to connect our community while also recording for future generations some oral history about our experiences right now. We're living through an unprecedented time, at least for most of us, a time with the potential to profoundly reshape our world, our country, our city, and our school. COVID-19 is bringing out the best and at times the worst in humanity. Luckily, at Marlboro, we have the resources, and that includes each and every one of us to be leaders in this new educational environment and to weather this pandemic, coming out the other end stronger and more full of laughter and life than before. So let's get started with this episode. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking with two amazing women, Annabelle Schwedes Monahan and Maya Humes, who are this year's recipients of Marlboro's Alumni Awards. These awards honor not only their ongoing contributions to Marlboro itself, but also their achievements and contributions to our society at large. I'm first gonna read a description of each award and then ask each recipient to tell us a bit about herself. Our first honoree is Annabelle Schwedes Monahan, class of 1987, an author and columnist, and 2020's Marlboro Woman of the Year. Since 1974, Marlboro's Alumni Association has been honoring outstanding alumni with this award. The Woman of the Year should serve as an inspiration to all alumni and students. She should be accomplished, enthusiastic, and have contributed positively to the quality of life around her, embodying the spirit of Marlboro. She should be a proud Marlboro alumna who has created a place at the table and has worked to change the world for the better. With this annual award, Marlboro seeks to reflect the depth and breadth of our alumni community and celebrate the remarkable impact of Marlboro women in action. And our second honoree is Maya Humes, class of 2010, and one of my former students, who works in national politics as a communications director and campaign staffer. Maya is the recipient of Marlboro's first ever 20Y Award. Marlboro's Alumni Association awards the 20Y Award to a young alumna who exemplifies the core values of Marlboro through her personal and professional endeavors. This award is open to all alumni who graduated from Marlboro within the past 20 years. With this annual award, Marlboro seeks to recognize and celebrate the diversity, successes, and passions of our young alumni community. So welcome to you both. So I'm going to begin with you, Annabelle. You are an author and a columnist. Could you give us a little bit of information about your time at Marlboro when you graduated and what kind of activities you were involved in at school? And uh, maybe even what were some of your favorite types of classes? 
So I graduated in 1991. We all turned 50 this year or and last year. And I was mostly involved in student government. I um, was president of the junior class. I was student body president as a senior. And I played no sports. I had no qualifications to be on any team at all. So I didn't do that. But I was mostly involved in student government. And in terms of classes, I, I really loved my English classes. And I remember I had the same English teacher two years in a row, Dr. Mary Brackenhoff, was maybe one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I knew from probably halfway through junior year that I was going to spend the rest of my life kind of mucking around in words. So she gave me a great just depth of reading. I couldn't believe how much stuff we were forced to read. Um, and I sometimes wish my kids were forced to read so much stuff and a great love of writing. So that's what I did while I was there. Thank you. And Maya, you are a communications director and campaign staffer working very hard right now on the 2020 presidential campaign. I'd like to ask you the same questions. When you graduated and what kind of activities you were involved with at Marlboro and maybe some of your favorite types of classes? So I graduated in 2010. So we just had our 10 year reunion. And I was involved in drama ensemble, I did tennis, and I also was involved in student government. So I was also student body president. And I did student government most of my time at Marlboro. So I think from when I was in seventh grade on, I pretty much did something in student government each year. So that was definitely a passion of mine. And so we share that. And English was also one of my favorite subjects. And one of you know the classes that really showed me how much I loved writing, there were many, but I think the classes later in my Marlboro career, probably AP English and my ninth grade English class were some of my favorites. And then history, AP World was one of my favorites. And so I got taught AP World by Dr. Atwell in junior year and also a push American studies. So it was really history and English that kind of nurtured my love for writing and for government. And so kind of has informed where I pursued my career. Great. Thanks. And uh, so now I'm going to ask each of you what you did after Marlboro. What have you been up to in the decade or decades since? Sure. So I set out all sorts of inspired after leaving Marlboro to be a writer. So I went to Duke University and I majored in English and I took all the writing classes and I was on just the right path. And then I got off track, although I don't really believe in people can get off track, but I got a little off track and I went and worked at Walt on Wall Street when I graduated. And so I spent two years at Goldman Sachs and sort of got caught up in that and went to business school and got an MBA in finance. And I'm just sort of moving away from the direction of what I really wanted to do. And then I got married and I had children and I started writing in 2007. So I was 37 years old before I started doing the thing that I wanted to do from when I was a kid. And so since then, I've, I've published four books, three of them for young adults and one for adults. And I write a regular column. I taught novel writing at Sarah Lawrence College at their writing institute for a while. Um, and I do a lot of public speaking. So that's sort of how I spend my time now. Wonderful. Would you like to mention any of the titles of those books? 
It would be great if everybody who was listening bought several copies of each of these books. Uh, so the, my first book uh, was nonfiction for young adults. Um, it was published by Simon & Schuster. It's called Click, The Girl's Guide to Knowing What You Want <clears throat> and Making It Happen. So it's a guide to positive thinking for teenagers. Um, and then the next two are novels, A Girl Named Digit and Double Digit. And those are about a teenage math genius who works with the FBI. Uh, and then the fourth book is a collection of essays from based on my column for, for moms. It's called, Does This Volvo Make My Butt Look Big? Those are my books so far. I want to read all of those. Well, I will send you all of them. <laughs> yeah, please do. Well, and in your, your first book, the nonfiction one is so timely, especially right now. Well, you know, it's funny because I, it, I mean, it's been a long time. That was 2007. And it's, I, I honestly should go back and read it because I, it's, it's been a long time, but it comes up again and again, how all of us can get in our own way with our thoughts. You know, you say there's this thing that you want to do more than anything else. And then your behavior is totally out of line with that. And if you can actually just like line yourself up, you know, with action steps towards the thing you want most of all, it's, it's actually fairly easy to achieve. Um, but that's what, that was the idea behind it. Fantastic. Thank you. So Maya, what have you been up to since graduating? So I graduated and went to Stanford for college and I majored in American studies. So definitely kept the history going and my concentration was in ethics and politics. So my focus was political science. I took a lot of philosophy classes, a lot of poli-sci classes, and just really had a lot of fun being able to shape my major there and just put whatever I wanted into it. And so that meant English, that meant history, that meant political science. And then I got my master's in communications from Stanford the year after I graduated and ended up staying in the Bay Area for a couple years after and worked at a tech company that makes recruiting software. And, you know, I just loved the people at my job. I wasn't as passionate about the product and the end goal, but I loved everything else about it. I loved my coworkers who became some of my best friends. I loved the work I was doing. So I was focusing on communications and writing a lot and really enjoyed that. And, you know, I stayed there for a couple years, but realized that the end goal was really important to me. And I really wanted to get into something that was mission oriented towards more of my passion. And so that's when I made a hard pivot and ended up moving to Florida and moved to Florida ahead of the 2018 midterm elections. It was a big change, but I knew I had to do it in order to really get my foot in the door in politics because I needed to be in a swing state and Florida is the ultimate swing state, right? So I learned a lot. I drove up and down the state, met with a whole bunch of reporters and met a lot of voters and just learned a ton that year and realized that I really, really enjoyed working in communications in politics and that it just kind of fused everything that I loved in one. And so I stayed in Florida for a while. We didn't end up actually winning the big races that we were working on. It was, it was heartbreaking. We were working on the governor's race there and the Senate race primarily, and then some congressionals. And we lost the governor's, which was the biggest blow because that was where we put most of our resources. But, you know, I still loved the work. And so I stayed at Next in America, which is the organization I was working at, and it focuses on mobilizing young people. So 
mobilizing people 18 through 35 and really focusing on the issues that they care deeply about. And so I stayed there and became the national press secretary after I was in Florida and actually oversaw the communications programs in multiple states. So Florida, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maine. And so really learned a lot about other swing states and their media landscapes. And that was really fascinating. And then I, I've actually had seven jobs since graduating, which I've realized is insane because most of my friends have had one or two. And also, you know, the dynamic in terms of how many jobs you've had has changed so much. But in politics, with campaigns, you can have several jobs in a year. So I went from being on the ground in Florida to being the national press secretary to working on Kamala Harris's campaign as her California communications director to working on Bloomberg's campaign as his chief of staff for one of his national co-chairs, then worked for the mayor of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs, and consulted for his foundation and for his role as mayor, and now am on the Biden campaign and I'm the North Carolina communications director. So, you know, it's been an eventful few years, but um, just have learned so much. You learn a ton because a day kind of feels like a month in campaign world. And so it's been really fun. Wow. That is an incredible trajectory in such a short time. Speaks a great deal for your skills and your ability to affect change. So well done. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about your work with Mayor Tubbs, because he is perhaps a figure that not everyone knows about, but is is a very inspiring figure in his own right. Absolutely. I mean, he is incredible. He's only 30 years old, and he became mayor at 26 years old of a city that is a mid-sized city. It's over 300,000 people. And so he's, you know, he's running this city with hundreds of thousands of of residents. He became a city council member at 22. And he did all of this growing up, or after, of course, growing up in Stockton, which has been counted out in a lot of ways historically. You know, it's had issues with high crime, with high poverty rate. It is just a city that not very many people know of. It's close to Sacramento and in the Central Valley. And so not a lot of people have heard of it, but Like I said, it's a sizable city and it has just a lot of historical inequity. And so he's really come into his role as mayor and made substantial change and is considered a rising star. I always love that term because people love to use it. But he, yeah, he's considered a rising star because he's really pushed the envelope in terms of what he's really pioneered in Stockton. So he pioneered the first universal basic income program, which of course we're talking about so much now on the national level with COVID and people really needing stimulus checks. And he pioneered that in Stockton and ended up giving $500 checks to hundreds of people in Stockton. I think it was $500, but it it was definitely a sum each month that he was giving to people to help them just afford their basic needs and also go beyond their basic needs. And so he really did something that was not seen as, you know, mainstream Democrat ideal and has really changed a lot for Stockton in terms of education, in terms of equity. And it, it was really amazing to work for him. I actually went to school with him. He was two years above me at Stanford. And so I knew him from there. And I knew his wife, who was in my class really well. But we just collided because he was also a big Kamala supporter. 
And so then after Kamala ended her campaign, then I went on to work with him on the Bloomberg campaign and then stayed on with him afterwards. Yeah, he's he's incredible. I encourage anyone listening to go and look him up. His story shows you that as a young person, you can really, really make significant change that actually informs the policy work of a lot of electeds who have been in this work a lot longer. And what did you learn while working at in Kamala Harris's campaign? By the way, she came to speak at Marlboro. I'm not sure whether you knew that. Yeah, she she came to speak kind of recently, right? She came to speak when we were in high school too. And I've just, I've followed her pretty much my whole life. I can't remember a time when I didn't know she was just because she's a black woman in politics and there are so few of those. And, you know, she's done a ton to impact California in her own right. And so working for her was like a dream come true. I always said it was my dream job when I was in it and I still call it my dream job. And I learned a lot about how to really take ownership of my own communications program because in previous roles, I had had a lot of guidance and was given a lot of training. In this role, you were kind of in a campaign that's for a candidate. Like people don't have time to train you. Like it's not, it's not a time when people can kind of tell you, this is how you do it. This is what you do. Like you were thrown in there and you have to figure it out. And it's really scary at first and it feels intimidating, but then you realize that, you know, the reason it's your dream job is because it's a reach job, because it's something that you didn't feel like you could get, but you got it. And so it was really just realizing that so many people take jobs that they don't feel like they're quite qualified for. But if you just work really hard and, and you do everything you can to learn from really experienced people, then it becomes something that you are really qualified for. And so, yeah, I had great mentors who were who were women on the campaign, women of color on the campaign, who really took me under their wing. And my manager was really, really wonderful and guided me a lot in terms of learning about the California landscape and just learning what it was like to work for a candidate. And you also learn about defeat. And when she dropped out, it was like a nightmare. It felt like, you know, I had lost something that was so dear to me, but you know, then you learn that that's politics is that you have to keep going even when your candidate, you know, is no longer in the running. So thank you for that. And Annabelle, I want to invite you back into this conversation as well. I heard possibly some things that might have some concordances with your experiences. First of all, you know, you made a a big pivot to a new career when you were becoming a writer and that could be um, potentially really scary, but it also it sounded like from your earlier comments, felt very like you were at home again, returning back to your love. So could you speak a little bit more about what that experience was like for you? You know, I think, I think it's, the, it's the opposite pivot. So the hardest thing in the world is to do the thing that you're not that interested in and you don't have the skills for. And so that was me working in finance. So I worked in finance for a long time and the whole time I think, this is really interesting. This would make a great story. And then I'd have to, you know, spend 14 hours working on a spreadsheet. So that was really hard. So when I decided that I was going to stop pretending to be that person, because there is something glamorous about being that person, you know, I was, look, look at me, look what I'm doing. Um, and I was just going to be the person that I am. That was actually very easy. So writing, as hard as writing can be, it's so easy for me because I really enjoy doing it. 
And I just think that, you know, anytime in your life, when you find something like Maya, you sound so energized by your work. Like I picture you literally jumping out of bed to go and do what you're doing. If you can find that thing to do and then find a way to make that your job. I mean, I just, I don't understand how you can have an unhappy life if that's your path. Can I ask a question, Annabelle? Sure. So when you realized that you wanted to get out of finance and and start writing, you said you were how long into your career? I was, well, I'd had two years and then two years of business school and three years after. So three years more in investment banking. Wow. And so there wasn't any aha moment. It just kind of came gradually. Oh, no. You know what it was? Aha, I'm pregnant. That's what it was. And so I was pregnant and I was like, oh, you know, this is a terrible job for and my husband's also an investment banker. We're both going to be investment bankers. I'm out of here. I've got the uterus. I'm out. And so, and he is like, likes what he does and he's good at what he does. So it sort of made sense. So that was it. I mean, the thought of doing that and I, I just, that wasn't going to happen. So that, that's when I quit. I quit when I was pregnant with my first son. And then to be honest, there's a, there's a long trajectory down from there because when you're going a hundred miles an hour in your career and you stop and you're at home with children, you sink a little bit. You're like, who am I? What, you know, this is, this is sort of a shock to your system. And that takes a little bit of getting used to. But I had, I think my oldest son was eight when I wrote my first book. So I, you know, I, I didn't work for a long time. I love that you use that to pivot into what you really love. Cause I do feel like that's a fear that people, you know, my age 28 who are going into our thirties think about is like, how do we pause our career and try and try and raise a family? And what's that going to do to our career? And it's just a scary thought. And so I think it's really awesome that you use that as a way to actually do what you love. Thank you. I, I do. I do think it's a really scary thought. And I don't think it's something that we talk to our daughters about enough. I don't have a daughter, but I don't think it's something that we talk to girls about enough, which is, you know, oh, you can do anything. Go do it. Go do it. Go do it. How to create, and I actually don't know what the answer is, but how to create a career that you can leave or come back or create an infrastructure in your life that entirely supports your career. I mean, Cheryl Sandberg talks about that all the time, right? Like her, her career has been successful because she married a guy who's super supportive of that career and of, of their family. So I think we should talk more about that when, when we're with our girls. Yeah, we need it. I'm older, obviously, but like, you know, I still need that conversation as it's approaching. Yeah. And by the way, no one in this conversation thinks you're older. You're not older. Oh, I, did, I just meant older than like a high schooler. I, I don't think I'm older either, but. No, but you're, you're in that moment of your life. And I think it's a really important thing to talk to a lot of women and a lot of women whose lives look the way you want yours to look. How'd you do it? How'd you, what sacrifices did you make? Was it worth it? What, what would you do over again? I, I think we need to be honest with each other about that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a great segue to my next question for you, Annabelle, uh, which is, did you have someone who really mentored you in your chosen field? Maya, you talked about getting some good mentorship just a few minutes ago, or was this something you really had to, a path you really kind of had to forge on your own? Uh, well, that's a great question. I've, I've actually never thought about that. I feel like when I was at Marlboro, I had great mentorship. I had great 
just like interest from my teachers, which, it, you know, to be honest, like when you're 16, like, I, mean, I didn't like think that much of myself. It made me feel really good about myself. Like, I think they thought that I was a person that mattered and that made all the difference for me. I had one really great teacher in college, but no, by the time I started doing this, I was kind of on my own. And once I hit a little bit of traction, I, I then attracted some mentors. Like I have this producer in Los Angeles who has become a friend who always calls and checks in on me about what I'm working on to see if he's interested in it. But that kind of, and then I can talk to him about, you know, you know, I'm stuck on this. What do you think about the way the story would go? And, you know, that he's like a good person to talk to. But those kind of people, I think, came later in my career. Writing's kind of, it's not a networking job. It's like a, it's kind of a solitary thing. What about you, Maya? What was your experience like at Marlboro? Was there any kind of a mentor that you could look to? to help you figure out who you wanted to be or, or you could speak with uh, honestly about your feelings of who you were at that moment? Yeah, that's a good question that I've also never thought about in the context of Marlboro, but I mean, I have to agree with Annabelle. It was the teachers. I think because our classes were so small, I felt like I got really close to my teachers and I could list the teachers that I remember so vividly in an instant because they made such an impression on me. And I feel like they really did shape what I'm passionate about now. And so I think that the fact that Marlboro really emphasized being outspoken and being engaged and the fact that school was really interesting and a fun place to be and you're around other girls who also like shared that energy, I think just made it so that you felt encouraged, you know, that there was no environment that was like, okay, yeah, you got to tone down the excitement about what you're writing, or you got to tone that down. Like everyone was engaged, if not only for the fact that we were competitive and we, we wanted to, you know, do really well. I think it was more though, that we just came to Marlboro because we knew that Marlboro was the kind of place that would encourage that. And we wanted to be a part of that environment. Maya, do you think it would have been different if you'd had boys in your class? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. And so that's what I was thinking is that I feel like I felt really just comfortable with all of my classmates and, and it felt like we were just all being ourselves. Like we didn't have to worry about what we were wearing or what we were saying and we could just be outspoken and be best friends with each other and not have to worry about these weird dynamics with boys. I think obviously co-ed education can be great, but I think because it was all girls, I felt really secure. Like I just felt like I never had to worry about speaking up in class. And I don't know if I would have felt any differently in a co-ed environment. Yeah, same. I think I was a little boy crazy in high school, or I know I was. I don't know why I say I think I was. I was. And I just felt like at Marlboro, I could just get up and do and say whatever was on my mind. And without, you know, society telling me that that wasn't attractive or, you know, tone it down or none of that. I just, I thought it was great for me. And I can really feel that energy in the classroom when I'm teaching. I think it, it gives students the permission to try things out, be silly, feed off of each other, and, um, and create something that's sometimes very magical, at least for a teacher. So was there anything that you learned at Marlboro um, or you've taken away from your experience at Marlboro that we haven't talked about yet? 
that's been helpful to you in pursuing your careers? Yeah, well, I'll say public speaking. I, you know, when I was at Marlboro, and I think Maya, you probably had this opportunity too, as you know, being student body president, I was constantly being asked to run the assembly and do the the special activity day and you know, MC the talent show, graduation, all those things. And it was in, as we said, such a safe environment that I probably made 50 speeches in high school. Like, so now that, you know, you have to go out and promote books or, you know, I, I talk a lot about mom issues. I do a lot of speaking. I, for some reason, I always wonder like, why is this, why am I so comfortable? And it's just because I did so much of it at such a formative age. So for me, that's, that's been huge. Yeah, I agree. I think that it just became natural to go up and speak in front of assembly. I remember that. It's like, okay, we're doing this again. And I really enjoyed it. And I, and I still do. And, you know, going back to the mentorship piece, though, I was thinking about it. And even though I don't feel like I had mentors as separate entities from teachers, I do think that when I then got to college and beyond, I started to really crave having a support system, even in a larger environment. So when I got to Stanford, I ended up becoming friends and just really, really close to a professor there who wrote a book called The Chosen Exile. And it is a book that focuses on passing, which is a phenomenon where African-Americans during Jim Crow and discrimination would pass as white. And she wrote this book and I helped do research for her in this book. And I ended up becoming really, really close to her. And to this day, I consider her a mentor and a friend and someone who I confide in. And so I found her at Stanford. And in each of my jobs, I've really looked for that because in politics, I think making really strong connections with people and, you know, just like taking the time to build relationships is super important. And so I have done that in each job. And I actually think doing that in each of my jobs has helped me get the next job. So yeah, when people ask me, how do you get into politics? Because it's such a strange industry in the sense that you can't really apply easily to a job on a campaign. And I always just think back to how I've gotten each of my jobs. And each of my jobs has been because of someone, you know, I've met, whether it's from college from Marlboro, from my past job, you know, it's just like, it's always been, there's been a touch that has helped me get my resume into the right hands. And so I think that like the fact that I had a support system at Marlboro made it so that I really sought that out in each of my jobs since. It's funny you mentioned the um, the book about passing because I had a student who was working with me in honors research this year who studied that phenomenon for, uh, for young people right now and what that experience is like. Is there anything that you've taken away from your time at Marlboro that's helped you to make sense of the world in a, in a different way since graduation? We're in a time right now of tremendous upheaval and change, and we've really kind of been in that mode, at least pretty continuously since you graduated, Maya, but it's it's not just been over the last 10 years. So what kind of more philosophically has Marlboro given you that helps you to understand yourself and the world? I would say that at Marlboro, I sort of learned to take myself a little more seriously. And I think it set me up for a, a lifetime of being just a little heavier person than I might've been otherwise. 
I had the experience that I could make an impact on the world. And I think that once you experience yourself, you know, doing something, doing anything, I think once a child has that sort of like moment where they're like, huh, look at that, I changed something. I think that Marlboro gave me enough of those opportunities that now that we're in a bit of a mess and the world is like, is bananas. I ha- I just have a feeling that I can get through it and that I actually, I, I think I don't have a sense of hopelessness that I hear from a lot of people. I feel like there's, there is something I can do. And I do think that, that that feeling was not a feeling I had with me in childhood. I think that was something that I picked up at Marlboro. The other thing that I took from Marlboro that helps me get through just about everything is my friends. To be honest, I am still, you know, we just turned 50. We all went away for a weekend together in Palm Springs. And I'll tell you, that was the most healing, restorative couple of days of my life. Just, you know, like death by laughter. I mean, we just had... I just felt so supported and like myself. And so those people having that touchstone to go back to is, is something that's really helped me a lot. Yeah, I would agree with that. I thought of sisterhood as the thing that I took away from Marlboro because, you know, the fact that it's an all-girls school, that is your everything that, you know, you're at most of the day, every day. These are the people that you see all the time. It's a small grade. So you are seeing the same people all the time, all the time. You get to know everyone really, really well. And I just, I have so many memories of us piling on each other in the senior lounge and just laughing so much and eating so much food and, you know, playing games and all these things. And so those memories just really stay with you. And, and I also am very, very close to a number of girls from Marlboro still. And in fact, a few of them ended up going to Stanford with me and I got even closer to them there because of the foundation of Marlboro. And so I just think it creates such strong bonds because like I was saying earlier, it's a, it's a tough environment. Like Marlboro is not an easy school, right? I don't think anyone would say that. And so you feel, you feel this energy of wanting to do really well but because you have such strong bonds with everyone, it just stays with you and it continues college. And I would love to do a Palm Springs retreat, you know? It, it's the best thing I ever did. I, I want to do that soon. I want to go on a nice vacation. Maybe after this election or something, I'll, I'll take some Marlboro friends and we'll go to Palm Springs. You just, you really maintain those friendships because there's nothing like having like an, a 90 person grade of girls to, you know, create some, some good bonds. And that's a great segue to my next question, which is about how do you stay connected to your friends and family during this pandemic? Well, I've been having uh, Zoom cocktail evenings with my Marlboro friends. That's really fun. And, you know, there's like four of us. And then we have we have a group chat where we send each other nonsense all day. But besides that, there's a broader conversation with my class on Facebook and on Instagram. We have a private Facebook page that is actually really interesting with like all, you know, the things that have come up recently and, you know, all the challenges that Marlboro's faced and the world is facing really interesting discussions of different people's experiences that they've had at Marlboro. I, that has been really eye-opening. And it's also been really nice for me to connect with just like really unbelievable women. I mean, they were like interesting people when they were 17, but now, you know, we've got the head of breast surgery at Cedars. I mean, just like 
really just people who are doing incredible things in the world. But I think social media, you know, for all its failures, it's, it's been wonderful about keeping us connected like that. Was there ever any kind of division or debates that have gone on among your classmates recently through social media? That's been a, a big challenge for a lot of friend groups. Yeah, there's, I mean, in the bigger class, you know, people are, are talking about racism and people are talking about, you know, comments that they remember from high school and people are really listening and being really thoughtful. Like, wow, that happened? Huh. I, I wonder if, you know, people, I think it's, it's been a really open and interesting debate, not debate, discussion. I have also been doing some Zoom cocktail events we've, we've been having zoom happy hours to catch up and, you know, just trying to do it regularly too. So I, with a few of my friends, you know, from high school and college will do regular zoom cocktail nights and we'll do them every other Friday or every Friday. And just a way to make sure we're regularly staying in touch. Like we would be if we were seeing each other in person. And I actually think it's made it so that I've seen people more than I would in person. There are people who I don't normally see because I don't live in the same city as them. And I'm seeing them more now because of these Zoom cocktail nights. So that's actually been a nice silver lining. And, you know, I would also say social media, Instagram is a big, big hit. And so I I keep in touch with a lot of people through that. And I think quite a few people from Marlboro have come back to Los Angeles since graduating. So yeah, just pretty much the the Zoom meetings have been a big part of it. We've actually done Zoom workout classes together. I don't know if you guys have done that. Yeah, we've done these Zoom uh, dance classes through this website called 305 Fitness. And so you get a workout in, you get to catch up. And then one time we did drinks after we did the workout. So you just kind of get it all in in a couple hours. And so... It's been it's been fun to spice it up with some different workout classes too. I love that. You know what I think really matters right now, like when we're all quarantined and stuck in our houses, depending on where you are in the country, is that you talk to people more regularly. Because if you just check in with somebody every six weeks, they don't have the energy to tell you what's really been going on. Oh, we're fine. Everybody's fine. But I think if you keep those regular conversations going with your friends, you know, once a week at least, then people their people are more likely to say, oh, what a disaster. This happened, or I'm upset about this, or this is what I'm struggling with. Because there are, to be honest, I mean, there are six months that I don't talk to my friends in California under normal circumstances, right? But now I feel like we're, it's just, we're having more converse, more more and better conversations. Yeah, I think so too. It's so interesting, but there's a nice highlight of quarantine. And how else has quarantine or the, in the COVID pandemic affected your lives, your work, your family and home lives? What's different now? Well, I have all my kids home. So I was in the clear. I had one child home and that was it. And then I got two more back. So I have all these giant men needing to get in my house. So it's total madness. But I will say that uh, I wrote a book. So I started like April 1st, I started writing a book and I'm, I'm through a first draft of it. So there has been something about this and that's like, you could take me a year to do, but there's something about, I have no place to go. I have no, I, have, I really have nothing on my calendar right now until Christmas. So I just have really enjoyed, you know, the hunkering down and I got a lot of work done. 
So that's been good. That's awesome. I'm laughing that you have giants walking around. (laughs) That sounds challenging, but also fun. I feel like in a lot of my calls, I'll see like little ones scurrying around in the background, you know, and it's just, it's one of my favorite parts of, of seeing people's, I don't know, home life is that sometimes their kids will come in knowing nothing about what they're doing, you know, just knowing that it's an important meeting doesn't matter. And so, yeah, and so they'll just walk in and be like, mom, I need this or dad, help me. <laughs> it's been, yeah. It's adorable when you're on the other side of the Zoom. It's not that adorable for those parents. That's what I was going to say though. I, I was like, I find it very adorable, but I'm not sure how I'd be doing if those were my kids running around and talking to me during my Zoom. <laughs> When I count my blessings every day, the first thing I say is I don't have a two-year-old because if you were quarantined with a two-year-old, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know how people do it. Right. Yeah. It seems very challenging. So it's fun. It's fun to watch from afar. And Maya, what's it like to work on a campaign in the midst of this pandemic? Oh boy. It's so bizarre. It, just defies all expectations of what a campaign is, right? It's so much about in-person voter engagement and rallies. And in my case, I meet with reporters a lot and I'm and I'm helping to get coverage for different events that we're having. And all of our events are now virtual. So we're doing the best that we can, but it's just, it's really interesting. Like we are getting people like Dr. Biden, um, BP Biden's wife or Carrie or Gore, all these people to join our events and they're just coming on Zoom, you know? So all of all of our calls, all of our roundtables, our rallies, it's all over Zoom. And so there are just so many things you need to adjust to. And I'll also say that with my current job, considering that it's in North Carolina, you know, I actually don't technically need to be in North Carolina. I could do the North Carolina comms job from Los Angeles, but I still want to be there because I feel like I need to be in the state and I need to soak it all up and you can sometimes meet up with people and all that. But yeah, it's really interesting to be in a situation where you don't actually have to be in the state that you are working in because you wouldn't be able to really see people in that state anyway. So it's a lot to adjust to. Fortunately, there are a good amount of processes that have really been laid out because we've been living in this for so long that the the campaign has really known for a long time that we were likely going to have an election in the pandemic. I will say I'm I'm scared of what's going to happen in November in terms of people's ability to vote. That's a big, big worry that I have. And I know a lot of people on the campaign have. And so we're just doing everything we can to make sure people are informed about absentee voting and mail-in ballots and, you know, just trying to counter any efforts to obstruct people's ability to vote. Definitely worried about people's ability to, to get their ballots in in November, but we're working on that. So we're also hopeful. Great. Do you have any interests in, in working in Washington after the election? If any of my friends listen to this, they would cackle because I have been wanting to get to DC since like 2018 and was almost going to move at the beginning of 2019 and then was almost going to move again. And then was almost going to move again. And I've just stayed in California for these jobs. And so, yes, I would love to be in DC. First of all, because if Biden wins and I am able to be at all associated with his administration, that would be incredible. And also because I just wanted to live in that 
in that area for so, so long now. And so that's, that's the hope. Hopefully get a little bit of a rest after the campaign and then move out there. Yep. Palm Springs for a while. I'll hook you up. Yeah, exactly. Palm Springs, then DC. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Give me all your tips. Oh, that's so funny. Um, anything else you want to share about your experiences with COVID? No, I've been really lucky. I have to say, I, you know, we're all here. We're all working from home. I have space. I have a backyard. None of us have been sick. So I just, I, I, I can't complain. Yeah. I would say definitely the same thing. And I've been able to be with my parents for the last few months and it's been really wonderful to spend a lot of time with them. And I, you know, like we were saying before, I have been able to catch up with friends because things have just been slower. So, you know, you're not worried about doing things outside of your house where you are. So you're kind of just hanging out more with the people that you're around and then also able to catch up with people virtually. And yeah, I think I'm really fortunate and it's just, it's really disheartening and, and of course, tragic to see everything that's happening across the country. And so, you know, just doing what, what I can to make sure that people are able to change things. Yeah, you're doing plenty, Maya. So let's switch gears a little bit and away from talking about the pandemic and think a little bit more about Marlboro and its future. Although certain aspects of a Marlboro education will hopefully always endure, to quote the alma mater, I'd like to think of those things as being strong relationships between teachers and students, a robust and challenging curriculum. There's still a lot about Marlboro that's changed since both of you were students, and even since 2010, Mai, when you graduated. What have you noticed that's different, and what are your thoughts on those changes? I can, I can go first for this one. I have been back to visit Marlboro a few times and have noticed just, you know, obviously infrastructure wise, the changes. I mean, the new innovation lab. Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Yes, that place is amazing. And I think that obviously the environment is so different now and, and computer science and technology is such a huge part of of everything we do. And so I love that Marlboro has really shifted in accordance with that. And that center is just stunning. And I know that Marlboro is now offering computer science classes. So honestly, that's a big change. I used to think computer science classes were only for college students and they certainly used to be. And so now Marlboro is of course offering that. And I just think it's, I think it's really amazing to come back and see what looks different. And I think it just looks really beautiful. I also came back to Marlboro recently for a young alumni council meeting, and they were telling us about how now there's a direct focus on social equity and um, social justice. And I think there's a program dedicated to that. So honestly, those, those two things really show me that, that Marlboro is taking in the moment and is really shifting with the moment, which... I definitely appreciate. And I think that, you know, there's always room for improvement and, and there always will be, but I really appreciate that Marlboro has taken those steps to change the conversation. And I've gotten a lot of reach outs from Marlboro in this moment about social justice and about inequity in our country. And I, and I appreciate that the administration has been so forthright with just reaching out. And those are the main changes that come to mind. 
So I, I mean, I, when I go there, Maya, I literally look around. I'm like, what is all this stuff? Like, I just can't get over it. And I, I mean, it's just, it was pretty fantastic a thousand years ago when I was there. It's really unbelievable now. But I do like your point that I think there's a lot of listening and responding going on. I remember it might've been a year ago, I was walking my dog and I was listening to a podcast about the college admissions scandal. And who's the person who they're interviewing, but Dr. Sands. And I was like, oh boy, you know, what's Dr. Sands going to say? She was so thoughtful and so responsive and so introspective really about like what that scandal says about us as a community, us as people. I, I just, I feel like maybe, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't quite turn on a dime at Marlboro like, like we do now. Yeah, exactly. It, it just feels very nimble in terms of responding. And, you know, I'll reiterate that I, I don't think that any school always gets it right. And I, I always appreciate when a school also owns up to that and is willing to talk about the fact that it hasn't always gotten it right. And I think, you know, Marlboro was an incredible experience. And I, I think that there are always ways that it can improve in terms of diversity and inclusion and really making sure that Marlboro is representative of our country. And so, yeah, I just, I appreciate that the conversation is happening. I think that of all the privilege, I like when I think of the word privilege, I think of my time at Marlboro, like that was a privilege to get that education. And now we've taken it up a hundred notches, what that education is. Um, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that that's available to a broad spectrum of people, you know, that privilege looks Privilege is available to everybody. I'm really gratified by and inspired by our new vision statement, Equity Leads Education. I hope that this really will be the kind of the lodestar that guides Marlboro in its choices going forward. Yeah, I hope so too. So um, I just wanted to ask if you have any final thoughts or questions you'd like to ask of each other before we wrap this up. Maya, I'm so excited for you to run for president. No, I'm not. That's so funny. I don't want to multiply by four that many times, but it can't be that long. I just... She has to be 35. 35, yeah. Here's what doing this has showed me, though, is that I love doing what I'm doing. Being the actual candidate seems incredibly hard. It just seems harder than, than I feel like I could ever manage and I, and I really love being the person who is like orchestrating things and then doesn't have to turn it on in the moment. So, <laughs> okay. But I think that we, we need to have our, the smartest people in our country running for president. I think that's what we need to have. So let's talk about this and we'll talk about this in four years. I'm telling you, in four years, I'll, I'll probably have some little, hopefully maybe have little minions running around. I don't know. If I'm... <laughs> Lots of room at the White House. That's fine. That's fine. My minions, I want to see that. One of the things that I have so enjoyed in hearing both of you talk about your lives is your capacity to affect change. And I think so many Marlboro young women right now are are looking for their way to make good and uh, to make something positive come of their efforts. Do you have any thoughts about ways that, that students can do that? 
I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, the first things that come to my mind when I think about these young girls, you know, I've been back to Marlboro to speak to girls three times, I think. And the intensity coming off of them and the desire to do the thing and earn the thing and get the thing and win the thing and change the thing is really like you can feel it off of them. And I remember I was talking to this one girl after a talk, she had read my book, she said something about it, and she sort of looked like she was going to cry. And I said, are you okay? Like my book wasn't that good. And she said, well, I'm just going to find out about college today. And I'm just really upset. And I thought, God, you know, that's exactly how I felt when I was in her shoes. Like it was the end of the world. And I sort of wanted to tell her, and I don't think I had the presence of mind to do it, but it's all going to be fine. You know, you're going to either win that race. And if you don't, if you end up someplace that's not, that's your second choice, you're going to do great there anyways you know, all of it's inside of you. It's not like all of these milestones. So I just think that all of these young women going forth, like Maya, you're like so inspiring to, to hear what you're doing. You know, it's just like you keep following your, your inner guidance to this place and then to this place and to this place, and you'll make the change that you need to make. I don't think it's more, it's so much of a how-to as just like coming into yourself. Yeah, I love that answer because my mind, of course, goes to the industry that I'm in, but I by no means think that, you know, being in politics is the only way you can make a change. Of of course not. And I think that's one of the first places people go is, is politics or giving money to something or, you know, kind of the, the easy things to think about. And I really agree. I think what you want to do first is you want to find what really inspires you and what you're really passionate about and whatever you choose, there is a way to make an impact on people, whether it's making an impact on Marlboro girls as a teacher or making an impact on, you know, readers as a public speaker. There are so many things that you can do to change the way people think about themselves and therefore the actions that they take later in their lives. And I think that's some of the most powerful stuff is when, is when you're changing the way people think in the early points of their life. And so you know, I think it's so important to just really think about what it is that that gets you excited and then go forward with that and realize that once you figure it out yourself, that's when you're in the best place to help other people figure out what they want to do or help lift other people up or whatever it is that, that you want to do to impact people. But you don't have to worry about, you know, saving the world as a Marlboro student, even though there, there are little ways you can help. It's It's really when you get more into your career and into your life that that you can kind of find your own path in helping people. Thank you for those answers. I think they're really helpful to hear. And I'm wondering, and this will be my last question to both of you, how do you each find balance yourselves? Mine's easy because I work for myself. So my balance is I, I need every day, I need to do some kind of exercise I need to spend the right amount of time with my dog and I need to be alone for like a, like a real chunk of time. And we are all, there are a lot of people in my house, but we are all like, everybody's respectful of that. So that is, that, that actually it's, it's not hard when I work for myself. I mean, Maya, I'm thinking about you like taking calls and you got Al Gore on the Zoom and you're doing this. Like I, I, I would be interested to hear how you do it. Yeah. I also find a way to exercise every day, whether it's taking a call and going on a walk or, you know, exercising after work. So I I work on East Coast hours, which means I wake up at like five. 
But that also means that at this time, people are starting to slow down a little bit. And so now is generally when I start to take care of myself a little bit. And obviously this time for a campaign, we have a couple months of the election is not going to be the most relaxing time and it's not going to be the best time for taking care of myself. But I do find the little ways to to do that. And so, you know, watching a show with my parents or taking a walk, zooming with friends, all those little things that can just give you a little break in your day are so important. And it's and it's really false to to say that you you can deny yourself those little moments because you definitely have time. But you know what's a cheat? You can cheat by doing work that you love. Because if you love your work, <laughs> then working feels like balance. Like sometimes I'm like, boy, I can't wait to get away from all these people because I just want to write, you know, that. So like if you're, you know, you're, you're in a spot where you're so passionate about what you're doing that I'm guessing you get a little bit fed by your work every day. Definitely. It's, it's definitely something that energizes me on a daily basis. And I just think that even with all of that, like I was saying, if, if I'm doing work and going on a walk, that's perfect because I'm, I realize that I should move my body. And I'm also still taking care of what I need to do. So you can just find ways to mix mix the two sometimes. And that's another thing that's nice about working from home, right? Not commuting somewhere. You can you can be in your sweatpants. You can take a walk. 100% true. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Annabelle and Maya. This has been a really fun conversation. I think a really enriching conversation, certainly for me. And uh, I've loved getting to know each of you a little bit more. I'm sure our listeners will feel the same. Again, thank you so much and congratulations on your awards. Thank you. So that's it for this installment of Marlboro Together at a Distance. I'm Dr. Atwell and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time to hear more about how our Marlboro community is living and learning through the coronavirus experience. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or suggest someone to be interviewed, please email me at katherine.atwell at marlboro.org. This show is a production of the Sherry and Ed Glazer Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Our producer and the composer of our theme song is the amazing Eric Weza. Thanks so much, Eric, for all of your hard work on this and all projects in the CEI. Thanks also to Regina Rosie Mitchell, the director of the CEI, and of course, Dr. Sands and the rest of Marlboro's incredible administrative team for supporting us all as we learn together at a distance. See you next time.